TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 12 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Nicholas Blackman about the importance of political satire. For satire to be effective, it has to be dangerous. So the more it appears as a threat from those in power, then it's doing its job. Here's Debbie Millman. Nicholas Blackman is an illustrator and designer. He's also an art director, and he's had some really plum jobs in recent years. He was the art director of the New York Times Book Review and also art director of the Times' op-ed page. He's currently the creative director at The New Yorker. His own eye-catching illustrations have appeared frequently in those and many other publications. He's the author of several children's books, and he's also taught design here at the School of Visual Arts, where he joins me now to talk about his art and his career. Nicholas Blackman, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much, Debbie. Nicholas, I understand that your favorite books growing up were the Tintin series, and even now you reread them. What is it about the series that you find so fascinating? I don't know if it's the, the stories themselves. Of course, you're familiar with the stories after you've read them a number of times, but just the way they're drawn, I think they're so clean and graphic. And So is it more about the style of the illustration as opposed to the story? Actually, if you do an examination, if you look at the story and how the story is crafted and the sequence of panels, it's almost like an action thriller. It's, it's really well done. If you do comics or sequential art or graphic novels, you appreciate Hergé's like, sense of timing and pacing and what he does to kind of keep the story moving. As a kid, I, of course, I appreciated it probably more for the drawings, but as I got older and as I did comics, I kind of appreciated the way in which the stories were crafted. I recently saw a video of you on the New Yorker's Facebook page wherein mm-hmm. you were talking about the typographic history of the magazine, and I thought I saw an illustration of Tintin in the background on your bookshelves. Was I seeing correctly? <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. 
<laughs> he comes with me wherever I go. No, um, I do have a drawing of Tintin on my bookshelf. It was really fun to see your office in that video. And I know I wasn't the only person snooping around right, on looking right. through the video. Apparently quite a few people were based on the comments on that post. But the books on your shelves gave away a lot of your design taste. You have the monographs of James Victory, Tibor Kalman, Rem Koolhaas, Bruce Mao, Gary Panter, and the list goes on. And you've said that there's something important about the weight of a book, the texture, and how it feels, and asked whether the Communist Manifesto would have had the same impact if it had only been published online. Do you still feel that way? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, whenever I think of the Communist Manifesto, immediately I see in my mind a red book or the cross, um, the hammer and the sickle. So there's like all this visual um, iconography that comes to mind. And I think that that's much more apparent with an actual physical book. So whether I, no one can know if it would have, I'm sure it would have, everything has much more impact when it goes online than it does in print, I think. Well, it certainly has can, plunk value in real life. You know, it has that sort of plunk sound when you throw it down on the table. can't really do that with something online. No, you can't. Something online can easily be clicked off or yeah, deleted. Or falsified. Um, you are a native New Yorker, and I believe you grew up on the Upper West Side. Is that yes, correct? Yes, it is. Stephen Heller wrote an article about you describing how when you were a little boy, you were always drawing. And as a four-year-old, you made a picture book about ships. And you didn't just draw a picture of a ship when you were four. You made an entire book of ships when you were four. So talk about that process. Talk about that experience. Four years old, making your own books. I knew Crafty. we'd be going back in time. I didn't know you'd go quite that far back. And I have no <laughs> idea how Stephen Heller came across this little booklet of ships. Um, but it sounds great. We have our ways, Steve and I. <laughs> If I could only do a book of ships now, um, yeah, I'd always love boats and I always love drawing. And there's something about sequence, telling a story, narrative that I've always loved. And yeah, I love the idea, the physicality of it, of stitching it together. I remember using needle and thread for a book and thinking to myself, wow, you can actually use needle and thread to put a book together? It's... You don't happen to still have that, do you? No, I don't. I don't. Oh. But the idea of like, I guess as a book, it just had a certain kind of magic quality. It was I, more than just a drawing. I have this visual of you as a little boy and imagining you do this, and it's really charming. <laughs> <laughs> um, your father is the legendary R.O. Blackman, the illustrator, animator, children's book author, graphic novelist, and editorial cartoonist. And his work has been the subject of many museum retrospectives, and he is a member of the Art Directors Hall of Fame. Yet I read that when you were growing up, Initially, you were oblivious to his fame, and this was despite the fact that he was the artist of the then-famous, viral, I guess you could say, back then, Alka-Seltzer talking stomach. <laughs> <laughs> and so when did you first realize how important he was? Seeing his work on the cover of The New Yorker magazine, oh God, it all comes full circle. I remember seeing a cover he had done of a bunch of skyscrapers of the island of the city of, of Manhattan, and there was it was during the oil crisis in the 70s, and there was no power, or there was a concern about where are we'd get our oil. And he did windmills on all of the skyscrapers. And I remember seeing that and understanding then what it meant to be a cartoonist or what a cartoonist did. Um, 
And then he, I remember going to a gallery opening on the Upper East Side for a series of drawings they did for Olivetti for the ca uh, catalog um, with a bunch of rats. It was like a rat race. And that was like my kind of like another memory I have of seeing my father and his work in the context of the outside world and thinking, okay, there's something to this, to being a cartoonist, to, to his work. But the Alcazar thread I didn't come across until much, much later. What do you think of it? It's, it's great. It's great. It is, <laughs> I can understand today, why it's a classic. The, right? You know, when people say, oh, your father's so legendary, like, yeah, he's my dad. I mean, but seeing that, you realize, oh, there is something about that that has a quality that's unlike, it doesn't look like a pharmaceutical, an ad for a pharmaceutical. There's so much humor in, et cetera. Yeah. But I understand that when you realized he was famous, you didn't quite understand why. I read that you thought his drawings were wiggly and minimal and you didn't, did you like his work? I, I, I remember asking him to draw a tank and it was a, like, it was like a comp competition or a contest, like who can draw a more powerful tank? And he drew this tank and it had, the wheels were huge, the treads, like it made no sense. And then the barrel of the gun was this tiny little stick coming out and it was just, how can that be a good drawing of a tank? It's a ridiculous tank. <laughs> and of course, now I remember that. I would love to see that drawing again. So That's exactly. I. It sounds yeah. hilarious. It's a complete satire and parody of what a tank should be. And it was pure R.O. Blackman. But at the time, I was thinking, and why can't he draw a straight line? So you thought his work was wiggly and minimal. What did he think of your work? Did he critique your work? He was always... My sense, I mean, one can't really truly remember, this was so many years ago, but my sense was that he was always encouraging and that if he saw something he liked, he would always mention that he liked it. And because it was my father, it's your parents, of course, it had a special weight. And because he is in that field, it had extra special weight. So I would I would say they they were encouraging even when I was going through my spaceship robot phase and drawing <laughs> the craziest drawings that have absolutely nothing to do with the kind of work that he does and had no content whatsoever. Um, I see the book now, The Formative Years of Nicholas Blackman. <laughs> no, please, you would not want to see Starting that Starting with a book of ships. <laughs> but then when I actually sought out his opinion on my work, it was a completely different story because then I was actively showing it to him and asking his opinion as a fellow designer, and he was ruthlessly honest. In um, what way? What, what is the most ruthless thing you can remember him saying to he you? He didn't like it. He'd just say it's bad, which is great. I mean, I don't have that. When students show me their work, I'd say, oh, I think this could be better. This could be improved. I find it like a nice way of saying things, of packaging my criticism, whereas my father was just blunt. He would just say, and if it was good, you'd say, yeah, this is good. This is really good. And that's as far as it got. So I, I appreciate his honesty, but it was also, of course, had the potential to be devastating when he didn't like something because he would just I would work forever on a long project and I would show it to him and say oh no it's not it's not working Oof, painful and he was right he was right but it's like you have to have like a few home runs within and then you can strike out a bunch of times but you know that you can do a few home runs so it was like a give and take that's the definition of confidence repetitive effort done successfully yeah. <laughs> it's totally required I think in design what was the biggest thing you learned from your dad or the biggest thing you're still learning from your dad? I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint or narrow it down to one thing. I mean, just the general idea of design or illustration, there has to be a point to it. It has to communicate something. There has to be an idea. And if it doesn't have an idea, then it's just somehow superficial or not really saying much or doing much. Your father said this in an interview. 
I tended to work late hours away from home, and there never was any of my artwork in the apartment. So my not being around Nicholas might have given him the psychological space to become his own artist. Do you think that that's true? I think that's a really good point, and I think that is absolutely true. There's something to be said with his not trying to force my hand in any way, or there's no expectation that I should become a designer or an illustrator. It was something he did, and he never he never forced it upon me, but it was a kind of like naturally, organically there. All of his friends were illustrators, well-known illustrators, like Topor and Jean-Michel Follon, um, that Paul Davis, and so I... It was always there for me to see, and if I wanted to access it, I could access it. And um, coming back home and reading a Tintin to me was as far as it got in terms of his saying, influencing me with illustration and design, I think. You just talked about the work that you were exposed to. I know that uh, you were first made aware of artists and cartoonists like Art Spiegelman and Francois Mouly, uh, Raw Magazine, uh, as you were growing up, how much of an influence were were those particular artists to you? Massive. I mean, I remember it was just at that point where you begin to start really taking illustration or drawing seriously as a career. And my idea of a comic had been Donald Duck or Tintin. But then my father came back home with maybe not the first issue of Raw, but maybe the third or fourth issue. And it was electric. It was amazing. And it kind of coincided also with going through my punk rock phase and listening to all this music and seeing like the covers of, you know, the Raymond Pettibone covers of Sonic Youth. And there's just this kind of like magic in the air. And the new wave comics that Francoise and Art were publishing through Raw were just astounding. You and your dad, you didn't go to art school or design school. You both went to Oberlin College. What did you study when you were in school, Nicholas? Uh, I was a liberal arts major. I think it was a combination of studio art and art history. I think he majored in English, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I would have probably gone to art school, but he was adamant that there was no point in going to art school. Here I am talking at SVA. Um, and because he didn't go to art school and always was kind of dismissive of design school, then I thought, oh, I'll just get a traditional liberal arts education. And Oberlin seemed to be a very open school, had a great art museum. There was this political fire that was, once you were at that school... Everyone there was engaged, everyone had an opinion, and that appealed to me a lot. You started your own publication, or a zine, titled No Zone in 1990, right before you graduated as a winter term project. What kind of class was it for? The winters are so brutal, or had been so brutal in Oberlin during the month of February that they invented this winter term that's just four weeks or five weeks, I believe. And you would just do whatever you want. You would get two credits for it. You'd find a teacher that would sponsor it. And it was great. So you'd go off campus or you could stay there, but most people would go off and they'd just do whatever project they wanted. They would find some faculty member they regarded, and then they would kind of submit the results of the project afterwards. After you graduated, you continued making No Zone, and you've said you wanted to launch yourself into illustration and politics and cartoons, and that starting a zine was akin to starting a band in high school, <laughs> if you like music. How were you putting the magazine together at that point? It was akin to being like in a band. It was definitely a one-man band because I was doing everything. I mean, I was editing it. I was art directing it. I was putting it all together and, and publishing it and trying to distribute it on top of that. Um, 
it was completely inspired by Raw Magazine, and I really, and this also is a scene called World War Three, and I really was a desire, like, oh, that is fantastic. I want to be able to do that, too. And so this was an attempt to do it myself. And the first few issues were a bit of a fiasco for me, so I just kept trying to reinvent the wheel and improve myself and bring in different illustrators and artists. And it was really, it was, the whole thing was kind of like a discovery process. Um, Why do you think that the first couple of issues were fiascos? What I've seen, they're not at all. They're probably more relevant now than ever before. <laughs> the first issue, I didn't put together the right number of pages. So when I went to the with printer, they had to print blank pages in the middle because I couldn't, I didn't have a multiple of eight or 16, I believe. So we had to, this was a, a magazine that was called No Zone and it was supposed to be a, satirical magazine on the state of the environment and I published all this blank paper in the middle of it that was just completely it's wasted. It's a statement, Nicholas. It's <laughs> a statement. I had, to, I had to by hand rip out each one. I mean, I, I did not know what I was doing. And then I had the magazine. I did not know how to sell it. The plight anyway, of an artist. <laughs> it, it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I read that you considered each issue an improvised adventure. <laughs> I love the way you put that. Completely. You, you created 10 issues of No Zone. The first two didn't have thematic names, but issues 3 through 10 had titles as follows. Destruction, Utopia, Poverty, Crime, Extremism, Work, Empire, and Forecast. And you also had article titles such as The Idea of Nature, Special Destruction Dispatch. And as I just mentioned, it sounds like you could be writing about... 2017, back then in 1991. Is that eerie to you? (laughs) It is a little bit eerie. I mean, right now, okay, Special Destruction Dispatch or the destruction issue really was kind of the issue that was inspired by the first Gulf War. And um, then then the Empire issue was also kind of um, was a reaction to the second Gulf War. So it's amazing how these historically these themes come back and inspire yeah yeah more issues you did one special issue titled 100% evil with Christoph Neiman and featured an introduction by Chip Kidd what made you decide to create a magazine or a zine called 100% evil that actually wasn't a zine that was a little that was artist really a book, it was like right? a little artist project between Christoph and myself we decided we would launch a, a publishing venture called 100% and the idea was we would just he would do a bunch of drawings, I would do a bunch of drawings, then we'd publish it together under a theme. And each edition would be a different percent. So there'd be one issue would be 12%, one issue would be 23%. And then when we had all the editions together, it would equal up to 100% and then we'd stop publishing. That was the concept. Yeah, that's actually a great heady. concept. It's a little, yeah, it's a little too brainy. So you ended up doing one at one hundred percent, and it's, it gets worse than that. Each percent represents the cost of the book. So eight percent, which was the theme, was architecture and was printed on a long sheet of blueprint paper, cost eight dollars. And twenty three percent theme was maps, and it was why put those kinds of restrictions on you just for the fun of it? It was just completely like late night drinking, coming up with these crazy. Rest- I don't know. I do love restrictions, though, and I do love, like, having some sort of system or logic, so I think I think that's what appealed to us. So, like, self-torture. <laughs> Completely masochistic, right. <laughs> no, why can't you just, like, go out and make the book? It's, you with, want it to with be, freedom. Yeah, freedom. You want it to be, like, a little bit special, or you want to find some sort of reason for it to exist, I suppose. How did you find the publications? So those were published by Princeton Architectural Press. Well, No Zone, the last two issues were as and, well, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Empire and Forecast. Yes. 
What made you decide to work with the commercial publisher just for the distribution and them paying for everything? Or? Because to actually put a magazine together, it costs so much to print it, to ship it, to distribute it, to then to follow up with all the stores and distributors to get the money back. And it becomes just about business. It becomes just about how can I pull this off economically without losing so much money. And with the publisher, you just package it all together, hand it off to the publisher, and they take care of the distribution. So... You were included in the Cooper Hewitt Design Triennial in 2006, but haven't published a new issue of No Zone since 2008. Any plans to create a new issue? It seems like the time is right <laughs> for a new No Zone or 100%. There's so much. No, absolutely. And I think about that. But it's uh, right now I'm kind of committed to where I work at The New Yorker, which is, yeah. Yeah. While you were putting... No Zone together, you also had your own agency, which you called Knickerbocker. Why that particular name? It all goes back to my father because I didn't want to. I had a pen name called Knickerbocker. That was my pen name, my nom de plume for when I was doing No Zone because my father is R.O. Blackman. So I thought I just wanted to do it anonymously to prove myself. And in so many, you know, so many punk rock bands, they have pen, they have names that are made up names like Sid Vicious. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to be Nicholas Blackman. I'm going to be Knickerbocker. And Knickerbocker to me, that seemed like a true New York old uh, school name that I could just had something seem slightly humorous. And so I just kind of adopted that. While you were on your own, you worked for publishers including HarperCollins, Little Brown, Penguin, and Simon & Schuster. And at one point you stated, if it's not on paper, it's not a book. <laughs> Do you still feel that way? No. I mean, the definition of what a book is, I mean, so much can be, yeah, obviously published digitally that can be a book that doesn't have to be on paper. But there is something to be said of, like, once it goes to offset and the amount of energy and commitment for it to be published as a book gives it another kind of layer of reality somehow because it has more meaning perhaps. You said this about your own illustrations. Mm. There's always a story to my work or I base a sketch on a particular idea. I like to take a familiar visual stereotype and build a variation around it. This variation allows me to make the reader think and put my message across at the same time. Nicholas, do you feel like you are able to put your message across in the same way when you're doing self-generated work or commissioned work? Do you have a similar approach? I, mean, that, I, mean, I think that's the trick with self, not with self-generated work so much as with a commission is to try to preserve a sense of your own personality or your own design sense or your own voice. I mean, I feel like the strongest design illustration, there's definitely like a sense of authorship. And where do you think that that authorship comes from? Is that just the innate talent of the illustrator? Because certainly some people, you look at an illustration and you're like, okay, Christoph Neiman, Chris Ware. You right. just see it. And then others, you're not so sure. You might guess. You might look. You might be right. You might be wrong. Barry Blitz, another person. You never mistake his right. work for someone else's or somebody else's for his. How important is that? I think it's crucial. I think it's that's what one strives for, at least I certainly strive for in illustration and design, is to have some sort of voice or some sort of personality. And I think it's certainly what my father had. I mean, I feel like all the great master illustrators and designers, Ed Sorrell, Seymour Quast, they all, like even in design, Paul Cher, they have a strong visual way of thinking. Do you think it's a way of thinking or do you think that it's a visual style? I think it's a way, I, mean, I like to think it's a way of thinking. It maybe that takes its form as a style, like it becomes a style, but I think it's, 
with Christoph and certainly with Barry Blitt and with a lot of these designers, it's really, it's a, it's, a, it's almost like a worldview, I would like to think. Mm-hmm. It's a way of seeing the world, but that can be dangerous and it can be stifling. So it's like a fine line between you don't want to do everything to fit your own personal brand. You also want to be able to break out of that as much as possible. And I think Christoph is very good at completely changing styles or, or he changes medium in order to change styles, but you can still there's still a, a, while, a wit there, yeah. I understand why it would be stifling. Why would it be dangerous? I think because it it could become redundant or it could become tired or there's always a sense of like, how do I stay fresh and relevant? And so you want to reinvent yourself as much as possible. So it's important not to fall back upon certain tropes. Self-generated work seems to be more and more important now for illustrators and designers to first get their name out. There was a time when your name was made over developing a body of work that was commissioned. And now there seems to be quite a lot more work. Even No Zone was a completely self-generated effort. Do you think that it's important now for designers and illustrators to work this way? I would encourage it. I think it's very difficult to be able to generate your own work, and I think it's a great exercise, and I think that there should be room and space in school to do that. And I think true artists are always passionate about something. They always have to be. It's in their lifeblood to be creative, so I think it's normal for them to be making things. Um, but they're excellent illustrators who don't have sketchbooks, who don't draw for themselves, who only draw when somebody calls or emails them and gives them a contract, and that has to be done for a certain amount of money. And that always astounded me, too. It's like, wow, you are so professional. Wow. That's so foreign <laughs> that to you me. Can, yes. <laughs> Um, while working on No Zone, you also began working with the New York Times. How did your tenure with the Times come about? What was your first job there? I was brought in by Stephen Heller. It all comes back to Stephen Heller. He was one of the first people, he saw my ship's book. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I Right out of school, I went to him with my portfolio, which was literally just a bunch of silkscreen prints falling out of a large, clumsy black um, portfolio. And he gave me my first illustration there. And then I went off and I did No Zone magazine. And each time I would finish an issue, literally off the press, the first one would go straight to Stephen Heller at the New York Times. And... He would, more often than not, he would include it in one of his anthologies or he'd always write a note back or he somehow always kind of like considered it. I know that he saw it and appreciated it. And at some point, uh, the art director for the op-ed page was going on vacation and they needed a replacement. Steve Heller said, well, why don't we just see what would happen if we brought Nicholas in? So I came in when Jarrell Krauss went on vacation and then subsequently when Jarrell Krauss would be sick. So I would be the replacement Sub you were the art sub, director, right. exactly, and that was maybe like 1995. So I was quite young at the time. And 1997. 1997 was when you became the art when director. When I was hired, and so yes, because of what you do yourself, because of the projects, because of No Zone, it led to this gig at the Times, completely by accident. You developed the award-winning op art feature. You created this event that now occurs in the newspaper. It's a space for artists and cartoonists to contribute their own observations, independent of any article. Talk about how you made that happen. It changed the newspaper. At some point I met with Arthur Salzberger, and he just asked me, is there anything that you would like to do to the op-ed page that is different 
that you can think of. And I said, well, it'd be great if the illustration on the page wasn't contingent, wasn't based on an article. If an illustrator or cartoonist could just say something and it could be a self-contained message, independent of the articles. Um, and he said, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Why don't you do that? And so then I went downstairs and I remember talking to the editor at the time, Katie Roberts, and I suggested this idea and she thought it was okay. And then I asked Tibor Kalman to do something and that's kind of how it was launched. So Tibor did the first one. The first one was Tibor. And what was it? It was um, a package of cigarettes that had absolutely no branding on it whatsoever. Of course. <laughs> Perfect. So, and the title was Losing Their Cool. So it's like you take cigarettes and you just strip it of everything. And his concept was this pure Helvetica cigarette no one would ever want to buy because it would have no appeal. It would look completely generic. And since then, the op art section has been alive and well, and changing people's perspectives ever since. Congratulations on making a difference <laughs> that very few people get a chance to do, to make that kind of an impact I'm, in one of the greatest newspapers of our time, of any yes, time. Yes, no, it's, 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 it's astonishing that it had that much longevity, and I really give credit to all the many great different art directors who've been at the op-ed page who've been able to use it, because the, the format is there, but it's really it's in the hands of the art director where you can actually use it the most. I understand that you once asked Paul Rand to do a piece on the National Endowment of the Arts, and his solution was to tear up the letters N-E-A, and you were unsure about the idea, and you asked your dad what he thought, and his advice was, just make sure Paul Rand signs it. <laughs> <laughs> the, and, first, the first piece that Paul Rand sent me, and I'm still astounded that I actually called Paul Rand off to do an illustration— I sent him a piece, and it was about the NEA, and he sent me back a clown. He faxed it, and I did not understand why it, he sent me a clown. Um, and I called him up, and I said, I don't get it. And he said, oh, it's a joke. The whole thing is a joke. The NEA is a joke. And I think it was at the time in which Helms was oh, trying to yeah. shut down the NEA mm -hmm. for Maple Robert Thorpe Maplethorpe. And, and he Finley, just thought, oh, yeah. that's all just a joke. Um, I said, oh, gee, do you have any other ideas? Um, and he said, well, how much time do I have? And I said, well, you have about an hour. And he said, well, in that amount of time, the only thing I can think of is to tear up the letters NEA. And I remember thinking, okay, I'll get back to you. And I remember thinking, now, just tearing up the letters of NEA, that's too easy. Anybody can do that. But that's, that was like a great moment when my father could just say, yes, let him do that. Aren't you glad you did? Oh, absolutely. And so much of being an art director is just like trusting the designer, just like letting them come up with a great idea, especially when it's a great designer. In 2006, you became the art director for the newspaper's book review. Was there a big difference in the way that you were working from the op-ed and op-art section to the book review? Yeah, I mean, the book review is a very kind of smooth-running machine. It's not contingent on breaking news in the way that the op-ed was. Um, and we were I was trying to illustrate books. So a book is something that's written well in advance. Um, there's a whole press machine behind it and telling you what the book is about. There was just an incredible amount of time. I didn't have the constraint of having to deliver something right away. So I had the luxury of being able to do something for several weeks. Um, so it broadened the range of different illustrators I could work with. And also we had covers. So that was fun. It's a separate magazine. Absolutely. On July 6th, 2016, you started a new job as creative director of The New Yorker. After it was announced, you tweeted that you would never cancel your New York Times <laughs> subscription and that it was the greatest paper on the planet. How have you been feeling about the criticism the paper's been taking in political circles these days? 
as much criticism as it's been taking, subscriptions have gone through the roof. So there's a lot of love there and there's a lot of dependence upon the times. And yes, they, they screwed up a little bit, quite a bit on the election, I think, in terms of predicting who would win. Um, but so did everyone else. And I still feel the times takes fact-checking quite seriously. They take journalism very seriously. Um, and that's becoming, I think, increasingly valuable to us in this day and age. And uh, the fact that right now we are under attack by this current administration goes to show you how important I think the Times is and is a, shows you the value of an institution like the Times. And I'll add the New Yorker. Talk a little bit about your responsibilities as creative director. Quite a big difference from being an art director. And it would be great to hear about what your role is now as a creative director at The New Yorker. Yeah, I mean, it's really tricky right now. I mean, it is extremely different from what I was doing at The Book Review, which was mostly just commissioning illustration and design. I mean, at The New Yorker, as a creative director, I'm kind of responsible for the overall, wherever The New Yorker appears, I kind of want to make sure that it looks like our, like the magazine, like The New Yorker, and that it looks as good as it possibly can. Um, And it's complicated because everything we do now gets spread across so many different platforms and we enter into so many different partnerships with different media organizations and each one has each one uses it in a slightly different way sounds like you're a brand manager nicholas well there's inevitably there's a bit of that and what does the new yorker look like on google news or what does it look like on blendle or what does it look like in all our various digital apps and on the websites etc um do you have a hand in any of the cover designs i know that's Primarily Francois That's Yeah, that's exclusively Francois. So talk about the illustrations on the inside of the magazine. Do you have involvement in the kind of work that we're seeing coming out of the magazine now? Yes. So I work with a number of art directors and designers, and we commission all the illustration for the inside. And then we have a team of photo editors. And so we're looking at all of that. You've said this about choosing illustrations via initial sketches. It's so subjective. There are no rules. I used to think that there was one that was better than all of them out there. I just have to find it. And then the more you talk to other people, they tell you that they like that one or that one or that one. How do you know what to pick? You know, I've been doing it for so many years. At a certain point, you just know. There's one that just like, it fits the piece. It just feels a little more interesting than the other sketches. And it's just kind of like it speaks to you in a way. And it's, yeah, so that's usually, it's experience. Historically, The New Yorker has had an extremely strict design code. Have you been able to influence it at all? Yeah, I've been tightening it up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the design cop. Well, actually, I read that. You said that part of your job as a creative director of The New Yorker is to be a policeman and ensure that rules are observed in order to preserve the integrity of the brand. So it is a magazine that comes with a lot of rules, and I think they're terrific. The temptation is to redesign, and I think there's a cult of redesign right now. And I think that that works for some publications, not for other publications. And I think the core readership of The New Yorker loves The New Yorker for the degree to which it doesn't change. It has a kind of like timeless quality. And I think the design is beautiful. It's like an elegant, it's a very unique combination of Caslon with funny little cartoons, um, with little italic Caslon captions, little spot illustrations, um, and extraordinary writing. How influenced are you by The New Yorker's legacy? Do you fear that you have a certain 
level at which you have to perform? And are you worried about being able to do that issue after issue? No, I mean, that's the challenge. That's why I love The New Yorker is because it is very quick, fast paced and it's a weekly. And so you're constantly renewing um, and the lineup, the schedule is constantly changing and the news is shifting too. So it's um, all these factors kind of keep the magazine fresh. And I think it's important, though, we have very strict rules to try to use art and photography and illustration and design that's as fresh as possible and as hip and contemporary. There's that tension between a typeface that was designed in 1926 with like some cutting edge funky illustration from some British illustrator. For anybody that geeks out about the typography in The New Yorker, I highly encourage you to look at Nicholas's video on the New Yorker Facebook page because it goes into detail like you wouldn't believe about the typography and the origins of the ligatures of the O's and so forth. It's wonderful. Um, Let's talk about satire a bit, Nicholas. It seems that satire has become quite dangerous in this day and age. Um, Do you worry that this art form will become more and more censored or life-threatening? Yeah, I mean, well, there is that concern. I mean, ever since Bannon has called media the opposition, I mean, who would have ever expected that? Um, And the degree to which Trump gets riled up and upset by Saturday Night Live skits, I mean, that's what would Saturday Night Live be without those skits? We need them. That's um, why Saturday Night Live exists in my mind. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So, yes, satire, I think for satire to be effective, it has to be dangerous. So the more it appears as a threat from those in power, then it's doing its job. What do you say to people that fight back with the notion that satire is not politically correct or that satire can be bullying? Because we're hearing a lot of that lately, and I'm still not quite sure how to respond when people declare this type of censorship on what really amounts to free speech. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I feel like free speech is sacred, <laughs> not to sound like some kind of crazy right wing, but I do feel like, and there has, there's always going to be something that comes off as being politically incorrect or that comes off as being slightly insensitive. And... You know, the Charlie Abdul covers, um, I, as an editor, I probably not, would not have published the one that provoked the terrorist attack in France, but I love Charlie Abdo and I'm so grateful that they exist. And I think it's important to have to, for cartoonists not to feel like they can be censored, but I feel like also one does have to be responsible. One can't just spew shit. You have to like clearly be aware of what you're For you anybody that might not be sure, why do you think satire is important? You know, they would, life would be so boring without satire. I mean, we just need satire. We need to be able to ridicule and to be ridiculed. And behind satire, there's always an intelligent point. It's not just making fun for the sake of making fun. There's usually some sort of witty point behind it. And so it's it's just another form of communication. In a video interview in the summer of 2016 with Slant Magazine, you were asked what you hope to achieve at The New Yorker. And you said to come back in six months to find out. Well, it's been about eight months (laughs) since then. So can you talk about what you're prioritizing? What is the the Nicholas Bleckman stamp that we should expect to be seeing or that we are starting to see? Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, there was definitely, 
We did like, you know, we did like a small refresh on the, the design of the magazine itself and the goings on about town page on the cartoons page on the back. Um, so it's a lot of like very small kind of finesses. Um, we're using the traditional urban typeface, but it's a different cut of the typeface. So again, lots of small micro adjustments, I would say, and I'm trying to combine that with very strong and powerful illustration. And I feel like the illustration is in a really good place right now. Um, and I, yeah, I really look forward <laughs> to unleashing lots of caricatures with this new administration. Um, and I think come back again in another six months and you'll see even more changes. Deal. <laughs> Nicholas, thank you so much oh, for being you. on Design Matters today. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you about all of the amazing things you've been doing. Thank you so much. It's been lovely to be here. To learn more about Nicholas Blechman, head on over to his website, nicholasbleckman.com, or pick up your weekly issue of The New Yorker. This is the 12th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.